0: We recently asked a couple hundred of you emerging biotech leaders about your go to sources of information when you face tough professional challenges. Your top response wasn't webinars. It wasn't scientific journals. It wasn't trade shows. It wasn't even consultants. Far and away, you said you most often turn to your peers for trusted insight. Enabling a community of peers is what the Business of Biotech podcast is all about. It's also what our new Business of Biotech newsletter is all about peer driven content, no strings attached delivered to your inbox once a month. Go to bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B to subscribe. The business of biotech is produced by Bioprocess Online, part of the Life Science Connect community, with support from Cytiva. Cytiva also demonstrates its commitment to the leaders of new and emerging biopharma at citiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Dan O'Connor learned how to embrace adversity as a captain in the United States Marine Corps, where he was among the first wave of U.S. Marines deployed to Saudi Arabia for Operation Desert Shield immediately following Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990. 33 years later, Dan's a JD who's held senior leadership and CEO roles at multiple biotech companies, including MClone, Bracco Diagnostics, Advaxis, Oncosec, Larkspur Health, Celos Therapeutics, and now Ambricks. Dan's seen some things over those years, but he's held a remarkably positive attitude even through the recent downturn and access to capital, and that positive attitude and embrace of adversity has rewarded Ambrex, his most recent venture, quite well. I'm Matt Piller, and on this episode of The Business of Biotech, we're going to learn a bit from Dan as he reflects on the ups and downs of 33 years of biotech leadership and shares what he's up to at Ambrex. Dan, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, man! Thanks for having me. I can't believe it's 33 years since I was in the Marine Corps. Not I, uh, be-
0: I'm I'm telling you, I, I, I the words felt funny coming out of my mouth because you you look fantastic. You don't look like you've been running these roads for 33 years.
1: Well, thank God, it's chopped from the the shoulders down. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can safely say none of my uniforms would the buttons would line up here. That's for sure. There's no yeah.
0: Pick- well, I mean, yeah, like, like I said, you look fantastic, and uh, and I'm I'm super happy to have you back on the show. We last recorded together uh, in the spring of 21 uh, when you were you were on my guest. You were my guest on episode 45 wow. of the Business of Biotech, and here we are. Uh, I don't know. I think I think when this drops, it'll be like episode 150, 151. So, Impressive. Impressive. yeah. Thank you. More than 100 episodes later, a um, couple years have passed. What have you been up to since uh, since we last spoke? Uh, sure.
1: Yeah. So um I have just um fairly recently joined Ambrex. Ambrex um um has in development two uh antibody drug conjugates and I'm happy to describe what those are. Um I have um had a terrific opportunity to step in and lead the company last November. And um we've um you know we've been we've been doing well. I think um, I was very fortunate because the company's been in business for about 20 years developing its technology and kind of defining and perfecting its technology. And um, and I think we're seeing today the kind of the the fruits of those labors, um, you know, as really starting to manifest in clinical trials and our clinical trials. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I say to people, we're standing on the shoulders of, you know, science, great scientists that have done work for almost two decades to get us to where we are today.
0: Yeah. What was the uh, what What was the the inspiration to to join the company? What was the appeal? What What sort of lured you in? Give us the circumstances that led to your joining there.
1: Sure, you bet. So yeah, for, I got a call, which was really nice to get a phone call when someone says, um, you yeah. know, i would like to talk to you. Um, I think what was most attractive to me is I saw that the company had fantastic technology um, in a really good space of cancer uh, drugs in development. Uh, um these you know so-called abcs antibody drug conjugates um and i saw that my skills of skills at least i think i've developed over the last several years could fit nicely into the needs of the company in the moment um that was really kind of um you know, unfortunately like a lot of biotech companies over the last two years the companies had experienced a pretty significant decline it's into ipo and um you know it was, uh, we saw the opportunity to you know potentially turn it around and really kind of put it on a different trajectory. Um, so fortunately, you know again, because of the work that was done by many great um, scientists and others over the last you know many years, um, I've been able to kind of seize upon that and communicate it and really um, kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together yeah. to, to get the company into a different place.
0: A big uh, one of the big puzzle pieces there. I, I referenced when I was uh, running through that sort of opening monologue. That uh, despite the slog that the last couple of years have been, uh, you guys announced a rather large funding round. It, it was just uh, just back in March, correct? Yep. So tell us about that. Sure, it was an
1: ATM actually. So it was um, we had an ATM and we were able to successfully use it, um, and uh, you know that put about eighty million dollars um, into the company's resources. I think we netted out about 78, and, uh, you know, that was, um, again, I think, could, you know, indicative of the, the work that's been done and the data that's been emerging on to, um, I think, emerging to be very important programs, one in prostate cancer and one in metastatic breast cancer.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about those. Uh, I'm going I'm to let you pick, a, uh, let's do a little choose your own adventure, Dan. We'll choose your own venture. I want to, I want to learn, uh, you know, about that experience with, uh, with the ATM and sort of get your perspective on the the characterization of the capital markets environment right now. Um, factors that are, that are uh, kind of, uh, factors that are contributing to the challenging environment, the inflation reduction act, interest rates, that kind of thing. Do you want to go down that path right now? Or do you want to tell us about, uh, your, your metastatic breast cancer and prostate candidates I'm
1: to talk about the market? I think, um, you know, I think we were able to use an ATM. I, I I um I think ATMs are good tools, not always the, the tool that you would re- use to raise capital, but I think it's has a um is a good tool in the appropriate circumstances. One of the things I like about it is the, the fee you have to pay to raise the capital is much less than a more traditional capital raise. Um and you know, on the other hand, you don't necessarily know who your shareholders are. You sometimes can find out later if large block shares are sold. So that's you know one of the You know, other sides of the coin on on using the ATM. The other other pieces, it's it's a lot less wear and tear on the organization once you set it up. It's not you know lots of um, meetings and type of you know roadshows and that kind of thing, um, which is um, important to do. But when um, when it's the entire team you know out interacting with investors, it really is takes away from the day to day work that needs to be done in the clinical trials. Mm. So that that part of the ATM I really like. and, um, yeah. So, um, I think the, the market itself is, as you, you just commented, Matt, it's tough. It's not been a biotech friendly market. I think there's manifold reasons for that. Um, you know, I, I think, um, I can say that the small cap biotech companies are an extremely important part of the ecosystem because they, you know, they're the ones that are really bringing forward the, the treatments that big pharma is not going to work on or, or to try to tackle. Yeah. And without that kind of work happening, um, I think we lose a lot. And uh, I think um, it's been really hard for a lot of these companies to continue to raise capital because they're not at the stages that investors will invest in, or necessarily where they sometimes in the past have been willing to deploy capital at certain points in a company's uh, early life cycle. Now it's it's really more predicated upon um, you know data and 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 more importantly. But it's it's specific data and kind of certain areas, so it's really become kind of a narrow focus in terms of the companies that are able to raise capital versus those that aren't. Um, I hope it does change because, again, I feel like this um, small cap biotech is a really important part. So many things need to be tried. We don't know if the drug's going to work until you get into human clinical studies. Um, You know, there's there's things that people think aren't going to work and end up working, vice versa. So um, you know that. To me, that's an important part of um, what needs to happen. And hopefully that capital environment reverses and whatever the other kind of things that are happening outside the biotech market resolve so it returns to more of a normal state.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what advice do you have for for those small cap biotechs who maybe don't have, uh, I guess, enough data to, to satisfy, uh, the, the, the investor community's desire, you know, for data to to fund right now. Um, you know, what, 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 to, in order like bigger picture in order to avoid losing that, that innovation and keep momentum on that early stage stuff going on, what, what, what can small, small biotechs do? What can the industry do?
1: Yeah, I, I actually had to do it. Um, you know, you, um, you have to work with your partners, right? So you're you're running a small company. Usually, are hiring um, service providers, CROs, CMOs, um, and you know lawyers, you know that, um, others. You've got to. Um, tr- I mean, one of the things to do is try to have them work with you and you know, negotiate. That's um, something where they're willing to still do the work, and you know, and potentially get paid or take some risk. You know, risk share those type of things. It's it never hurts to ask. You know, sometimes the answer is going to be no, and you probably think it's going to be no going into it. But um kind of thinking it, it, it kind of creatively in that way can help. Um, you know, you might just take a look at other things that you have in the company which are valuable that you can um, use. Um, for example, at a company and led we had a um the, the new Jer- it was in New Jersey and there's a New Jersey NOL program and New Jersey allows you to sell your laws but it only happens at a certain point in time of the year. It's usually like end of the year, and it you know when you qualify, and you get paid in the beginning part of the year. And um, so I knew that our company was going to be able to collect under that program or get a benefit under that program, but um, the money wasn't coming for months. Mm-hmm. So I was able to find um, a gentleman, an investor gentleman, who. Um, was willing to kind of loan us money as and we used as a as a kind of security against the loan the eventual and allow that would be coming that that would be paid and um it was probably end up, end up being the most efficient capital we had he didn't charge us a lot of interest to do that and you know it bridged a gap and um i think that's kind of the thing you just you know try not to be afraid um you know that fear can paralyze right and um just trying to think like, okay, what can I do? What are my options? What are the things I could do? I, you know, the other thing I did was just didn't pay myself and you know, agreed not to get paid mm. um, or get paid in stock. Sometimes um that, that can be a choice, but you know, sacrificing your paycheck. Um, and then also sometimes having to ask your employees to take a reduced pay for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I find people are you know, usually generally interested to work with you. And, you know, a lot of those kind of, they're the last resort things you need to do, but, um, it can help to bridge the gap in get to a spot where things turn around or the environment changes.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh, are you concerned about the, I mean, I, I guess give us your level of concern around, uh, the impact that restricted, uh, capital markets, restricted access to capital for early stage biotechs, so the impact that that's having on innovation and, and cancer therapeutics, uh, in, in particular.
1: Yeah, it was the part I was trying to mention before, Matt, which is, you know, we don't know. Like, when you see something come out of a lab, you've got pretty clinical data. I know there's a a base to think that the the program will work. Um, There's enthusiasm by the folks that envisioned it. Um, But you don't really know. You don't know until you get into human clinical studies. That's that's why we have clinical studies. And again, things that people look at, they're like, oh, this is definitely going to win, ends up not being successful vice versa. So, yeah. That 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 basically trial in in the human in human studies is essential towards developing innovative programs. And you know, many, many go into clinic, but you know, not that many come out of it and are you know successful. Um and I think if we want to continue to have innovative programs, innovative drugs, we have to feed that engine. And um, you know, there's some investors, I guess, that look at that and say, okay, if I can win a certain percent of time on my investments, I'm good. I'm going to continue yep. to pass and um, So, you know, to me, that's the biggest um, negative coming out of um, a market that like we're in now, which is essentially seized in terms of the ability to raise capital.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue uh, to tell me a little bit about your candidates. And then I, I've got a bunch more questions for you about, about company building, business building that I want to get to. But uh, you know, you're talking about, as you're talking about confidence and, and clinical data, um, Tell, tell me a little bit about what, you know, where Ambrex is uh, with its clinical candidates and, and what those candidates are poised to do.
1: You bet. So there's two, um, two that we're focused on. We have a lot of others that we've developed, but I'm um, a believer in focus. And um, I'm, I'm not um, not going to let us be distracted by other important programs that we have uh, that are kind of on the shelf. We really want to make sure that we can bring these two forward. And, um, and then hopefully that will unlock the potential of the others. Um, the first more mature program is called ARX-788. I just refer to it as 788. And this is an ADC that's directed towards HER2. And you, you probably know what an ADC is, but for the, the the people that are listening that don't understand or don't you know generally know, mm-hmm. it's an antibody drug conjugate, which means that you take a monoclonal antibody that's been engineered to fit into or to um, it, it be inserted in a receptor on a cancer cell uh, in the case of this program, it's the HER2 receptor, which is a receptor that's in the family of epithelial growth receptors, but basically it's a receptor that helps the cell proliferate, the cancer cell proliferate. So um, when I was in implone, we developed what we call blocking antibodies, which fit into that receptor and block the natural protein, which would otherwise go into that receptor and it, cause the cell to grow. We call that competitive inhibition. And in essence, it's that feature of competitive inhibition. Married up with delivering a piece of chemotherapy to the cell. The, the thought was, we you know, chemotherapy is extremely effective at cell killing, but it's an mm-hmm. indiscriminate killer, right? It's a killer that kills all cells, fast-growing cells um, that are in the body. When a patient takes intravenous chemo, it's going to go everywhere and essentially kill everything. And, um, and so the idea here is to marry up that targeting specificity of the monoclonal antibody. Again, what we're doing is getting into the surface receptor of a cancer cell and attaching to it a piece of chemotherapy. And that way we bring the chemotherapy directly to the cancer cell and destroy it. Yeah. In other words, we're deploying chemotherapy without having to put it, put it throughout the body. And the, the piece that Ambrex has, and this is you know to your earlier question about what drew me in, mm-hmm. was it a very, um, it, it, we we own a piece of technology that was developed with Scripps and and spun into Ambrose many years ago. And that's a, a specific type of conjugation of the payload to the antibody. So the chemotherapy is here, the antibody is here. You need to bring those two things together. And that happens through a process called conjugation using something called a linker. But um, to describe it as a metaphor, if, if you're conjugating onto the antibody and your conjugation is weak and it just pulls off, you're going to defeat the purpose because the, the chemotherapy is just going to pull away from the antibody. The antibody is going to fall apart. The bloodstream, it may go to the to the target, but it's not going to deliver the chemotherapy. And more importantly, the chemotherapy is going to be diverse, you know, diffused around throughout, throughout the body. So essentially, mm-hmm. like, like chemotherapy, again, kind of counter countering the whole goal. And so, with that technology, um, we built these two product candidates. Again, the first is directed towards the HER two receptor. Um, delivering a payload called a microtubule, basically that destroys the cell structure. And um, we have stability, which means that because of that strength of conjugation that Scripps developed, we don't see that premature release of the chemotherapy in the bloodstream. The antibody does not, or the ADC does not fall apart in the bloodstream. It gets the cancer cell and delivers the toxic payload. For 788, eight, that program's been going on for many years. In fact, um, it's, it, it was licensed to a partner in China who just announced successful phase three results with it in metastatic um, breast cancer, mm-hmm. her positive metastatic breast cancer. And um, we, um, before my joining the company, the company had been developing the same program in a very, very large, large phase three study. And then the landscape changed pretty significantly. And we, the board made a decision to, um, the company made a decision rather to um, to pause the development of that program, allow our partners in China to continue their their development, um, and then instead uh, look to license the program, so that we could focus our resources on an earlier program targeting prostate cancer using the same technology I just described. Yeah. So um, w- when I joined, I had the opportunity to review some of the data that existed in the program and kind of looked at the totality of the R seventy eight program. And kind of re- reopen the discussion around the program so that instead of doing a large phase three study, you know, going for the brass ring, so to speak, instead doing kind of more of a rifle shot study coming in after NR2, which just got recently or relatively re- recently approved in the second line of HER2-positive metastatic brass, and see if we could help patients who do not get a benefit from NR2, which is also an aid Right. So, um, it hurt, um, and her two was developed by Daichi Senkyo and it was, um, had, you know, eventually obtained FDA approval in the second line. And, um, our, our goal is to help the patients that don't get a benefit from that, which in the first year of treatment ends up being about 25% of the women who get that drug actually don't get a benefit. So, when we looked at that, that opportunity, we looked at our ADC. We recognize that we already have data, which is is not you know kind of hang your hat on data to say it's working this patient population, but it's at least a signal. Combined with all the data that we have from our um, partner in China, we thought it makes sense for our shareholders to do a small study post nr two because the market opportunity is um, very significant, and if we can you know if we can show activity post nr two. We think we'll have an opportunity a pretty profound opportunity for our shoulders so that that's that program is basically restarting it in a very specific way coming in post in her two um patients who got her two did not get a benefit will get our drug we're going to look to make sure they didn't have multiple prior lines of therapy we're going to try to re- refine that to or kind of confine that i should say to two or three prior lines of therapy and also we want to um ensure that patients actually are expressing the target HER2. So we're going to look to have relatively contemporaneous um, assessments of HER2 expression. So yep. that's perfect.
0: When it comes to turning your innovations into clinical realities, the first step is transforming your process. On the Business of Biotech podcast, we bring Emerging Biotech's weekly insights to advance their pipelines from funding to regulatory and other need to know topics. The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics. Check out their resources at cytivacom backslash emergingbiotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash emergingbiotech. Yeah, to, to your point, it's a there's a giant market opportunity there and it's super important work. Uh, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned that uh, some of the some of the technology that you're building on uh, you, you first saw perhaps during your time at at MClone and it reminded me of uh, a conversation you know I had you and I had a few weeks back that felt sort of like a six degrees of separation conversation you know one of those Kevin Bacon like who do you know that I know and you were uh, you were talking about a bunch of folks that that I've had on the show that you've worked with. Uh, many of which kind of drew back from your your days at, at M clone. Um and and you you've brought a lot of uh I think a, or at least a handful of longtime colleagues along with you on your career journey most recently to Ambricks. Um so I I'm I'm kind of interested in in unpacking that a little bit and getting your perspective, especially for those who are new, you know, new biopharma company builders. Uh, getting your perspective on the importance of, of that networking and relationship building and maintenance of relationships when it comes time, why, why is that so important? How does it work when it comes time to build out a, a company and, and maybe, maybe even breathe new life into a company uh, like Ambrick's? Yeah,
1: no, it's critical. And and thank, thanks for bringing it up. Um, so I was fortunate to start in the CRO business and um, you know, you know in, in one way i learned that 80 percent of what we do in biotech is you know interacting with zero so mm. understanding that that part of our business whether you do it internally or you do it through zero is critical and in that way that um a, a lot of um people at the time this is you know back to the 30 year 33 year ago thing that was mm. probably about 25 years ago and um and you know just it, it, that network that you, I, Built there and then went on to Inclone and the same thing. Worked with a lot of great people. You, um, you know, you develop friendships and relationships, and uh, you, you know, you work with some really talented people, and it gives you an opportunity to work with them downstream. I had a colleague who once um, said the best compliment you can pay to somebody is working with them again at another company. Um, I have kind of thought about that. I was like, you know, he's probably right about that, but um, but I kind of feel bad for the the. You know, there's a push to work from home now, and you know it definitely works. You know, we can all be productive and have meetings on Zoom, etc. But like, for folks starting off and they beginning part of their career, definitely encourage them to try to get into the office because yeah. that, that human dynamic and those relationships you're forming in the beginning parts of your career are critical. They're the ones; these are your, going to be your colleagues throughout your career, and they will be you know there'll be people, people that you help, people that will help you people that may work with you um in the future. Um, so, you know, not having the advantage of being shoulder to shoulder with those people, you know, in the earlier parts of your career, I think is a is not a good thing. And yeah. um I would definitely encourage people, if they have the choice, to get into the office and kind of interact.
0: Yeah, I uh, I recently had a, a guy by the name of John Balchunas on the the podcast. He's the workforce director of workforce development, I believe, at, at Nimble. <clears throat> and the entire focus of that that conversation was around how difficult it is to out- outfit a team in the in this day and age, uh, uh, you know, in in biopharma from the bottom up, right? From uh, you know from from a production level the manufacturing floor. Right on up to the C-suite, so I can I can only imagine that. I mean, I, a lot of this takes time, right? You know, we keep going back to that. Th- we keep aging you, Dan. Going back to that thirty-three years uh, in in the space, but you know, uh, a, a lot of that I I understand takes time. But how, like, especially in light of the fact that it's difficult to build talent around you in biopharma right now because we just don't have the 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 volume of of talented uh, people that that are necessary to feed into this great innovation engine. Uh, d- does that like really uh, i guess exacerbate that that absolute need to to network and 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 build relationships and and pull people along
1: yeah i think it, it does i think um i think when you if you get the chance to be the leader i think one of the things that i've tried to do is not hire you know you know if i've worked with somebody in the past and they know they can do it it doesn't matter to me if they were a lower level person they're going to a higher level if they're good, they can learn, right? I, I've, so I've hired people that were at director level and do a vice president level, you know, maybe each director level at a bigger company, DP at a smaller company. So, you know, there's that dynamic, but um but it's it's mostly when you when you've worked with someone and you know they're talented, um it, it's it's okay to kind of bring them in at a level that you know and give them responsibility that may they may not otherwise be getting for a while. And you know, that kind of opens up the the playing field right because you know someone could say well they've never done that before they don't you know they have they, not been a what it fell in the blank role right and you know so why would you hire them for that position and if i know them and i've worked with them um i'll say look it doesn't really matter they're going to learn it and you know you you're, you're hiring talent you're not hiring one of a, you know someone to do a i mean yeah you are hiring to do a specific job and there's expertise that comes along with that but the 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 people that um you know, if again, if you've worked with somebody who you know can handle it, bringing them in and bringing them into an area that's above where they, they already are may not on paper make sense, but it's always worked out. Yeah. And it kind of opens up the playing field because you're going two or three levels below, but right where the person, you know, where the candidate you might be recruiting for would come in at. Um, and then um, it, again, maybe just because I was an English major and a science business, I love science. I don't, I mean, I look at people's poor backgrounds, but mostly want to uh, interact with them and talk to people that have worked with them. Um, because it's 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 you know, there's there's you bring some you bring your knowledge base to the table, but what you really bring is your abilities. And having those abilities, you know, brought to bear in a company when they're um when they're good and solid, it can make a huge impact. And so the to me the that's the the piece i look at. It's like the to try to look at the person, not necessarily, you know, where they went to college or those kind of things. What have they done? And you know, what what do others say about them?
0: It's uh i mean, you yeah, know, it feels nuancey, right? Like it feels it, it it's difficult to to offer prescriptive uh, you know, how how to advice on on team building around sort of that 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 mentality that you're describing right now, but um I'm I'm curious like to what degree that approach was uh shaped in in your time in in the service maybe like uh you know how, how did that sort of influence this cuz you know I, I think about it on 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 as you're talking I I I think I'm thinking about it on on two different sort of uh planes one being like I know in the military like r- repetitive mastery is it is principle right repetitive mastery of a of a task of a thing discipline in that approach uh but then also uh, on the flip side of that coin there comes a point like in in a in a situation of you know like a, a guy like you you know you you volunteer and you you become a captain in the u.s marines and then you you know find yourself moving from repetitive mastery sort of skills building to here I am in Iraq in, in this, in the theater. So there comes a point, I, I think to the point you're making, Dan, there comes a point where you say like, you know what, Th- this person hasn't seen it, but I think <laughs> they got the chops. So we're going to, we're going to put them into it. Right. Like how, how does that kind of, was that formed up by sort of some, some know, experience?
1: As you're talking about that, it might've been a little bit. Um, I don't know. That,
0: maybe I'm making that up. Now, I'm just <laughs> you're,
1: now you're, you're actually very right. Like it's a great example. Like if you're, you know, kind of in a in a, in, a, in a kind of a non a situation that's not intense, right? It's maybe you know not you're not you're not training anymore. You're actually doing right. Um, in that situation, you're thrown into you know to do jobs that you've never done before, mm-hmm. and you know you're taking on responsibilities that maybe three levels above where you currently are. Um, and you know again that in that setting that you know it doesn't matter if you trade for it or not if you have to do it you do it you figure it out and and those are the people that you know and see and you kind of see them in a business environment you know when you work with somebody on that the person's really solid they just get it done they figure it out you know um and if you have a chance to hire their boss or them you might go for them even though they're both that's more you know um Anyway, um, yeah, I think that's that's a good analogy because it, at the end, when you're really working in a situation that's a crucible type of situation, you're under pressure. You're looking for people who can get things done, and that's usually the person that's got a good attitude that's that has, you know, work ethic. Um, you know, is, is you know um, is kind of a constant learner who's a volunteering for projects person. Um, you know, kind of taking on more work and getting it done. Um, delivering results, right? Not just the effort, but actually the results. Yeah. And then, you know, and again, I've had the chance to work with people and, and then fortunately been able to, you know, bring them in. And I think the the part about maintaining the team though is even harder than recruiting the team. Um, because mm-hmm. when you bring in really talented people and they maybe they elevate to a certain level and then they have an opportunity to go on and, you know, they, the, they get phone calls, right? Everybody gets phone calls from recruiters frequently. And, People are competing for talent. Um, and, you know, the, those folks usually at the, after a period of time will go on and do great things, right? But in their own right. They'll go yeah. on to be a CEO at some point or, you know, a, a C-level person. Um, so I get, sometimes they get like, uh, I wish they would stay. I want them to, you know, can't we all just keep working together? Yeah. But, it's, and it's, mm-hmm. but it's selfish, honestly. It's a selfish thing.
0: Sure. Yep. Yeah, and I think you've seen it. Like you know, you, you, uh, it's it's totally cliche, but uh, you know, if you love and respect something, let it go. You know, it'll it'll probably come back to you. Spend enough time around the space, it'll it'll, it'll come back to you, and it'll come back to you better.
1: I, I had a girlfriend say that to me once, and it never came back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I I'm sorry, I didn't mean to tear Mama. that wound open. <laughs> no, it's, like, it's all good. We have a uh, my my friends and some of my close friends and I have a a, a saying about uh, embracing the suck. We like to do things that would make a lot of people uncomfortable in terms of like spending long periods of time and adverse weather conditions and you know mountainous terrain and in Montana. When I was younger, we did a lot more of it than we, than we do now. But like Montana and Colorado, and we always talk about embracing the suck because there are times when you you know, find yourself in a situation whether yes. it's in business or in in uh, you know in your in your play life uh, where you know, in a couple of years, you're going to look back on those memories and you're yeah. going to love every minute of it. But yeah. in the moment, it's cold and miserable and yeah. sucky. And yeah. Biopharma is just like that, right? Sure. Tell big. me about that. I mean, I know you. you we talked uh, a while back about TBS, uh, and that kind of lines up with this "embrace the suck" yeah. thing, right? So, tell me about tell me yeah. about TBS.
1: Yeah, the, the basics school. Um, and I'll get into some of the other creative names that when Port gave. TBS was it was officially called the Basics School. It's the it's the follow-on training you get once you earn a commission in the Marine Corps, where you learn how to be an infantry platoon commander. And every Marine officer learns that role. Uh, and um, you're, you're right, though. Um, you know, depending on the time of the year, you go through that. I think it's a nine, seven, nine-month program, something like that. But um, it, it can. Um, it was actually referred to as the big suck. Um, it was TBS. also referred to as TBS, the big suck. It was also referred to as ticks, bugs, and snakes. This, this better stop This base sucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on a list, a list went on. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, and that does, it does form you. Although, you know, like, I guess it's really the personality. Like, I, I don't like sometimes they'll say, well, you know, you went through tough stuff and you did the hard things. I guess that helps you in the situation you're currently in. If it's hard and not really, honestly, for me, it's like, I don't draw upon those things and be like, oh, I've done this. I can still do this. Um, it's more like just, you have to do it right you're in a situation that it needs to be done something needs to be done so you just got to press on and get it done and and you're right in biotech again i had another colleague um who said to me you know it's biotech is the place where you can go from the highest highs to lowest lows in 24 hours yeah. <laughs> and you know it can be right i mean things change frequently um but um i think the thing that i kind of i most fight against is being afraid Right, being afraid of failing, being afraid of not taking chances, and really just kind of dealing with that fear and pushing it down um, as much as possible. Because it is not, you know, there's anything pretty much you're running human clinical studies, there's a lot of variables, you know, and pretty much anything can happen. And um, you know, there's ways to ameliorate those risks and those those things, but for the most part, it's still like you know, biology of human beings and you know, that can be hard, you know, that can be really hard. And you're kind of working through it and you're really believing in it. And that's where kind of the fear sometimes creeps in. Uh, what if this does poor kind of thing for me? I just feel like, all right, you know, that's if, if, if people weren't trying it, no one would get a potential advantage here. You just got to push it down and keep going.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any, like, uh, any practical advice for, 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 I don't know, putting yourself in the right headspace to push that fear yeah, down. Great,
1: great question. Don't make decisions. On a little bit of sleep, because you can work around the clock, and then you're in a moment where you have to make a, a call. Don't do it. Go yeah. get some sleep. Don't make a call like where you haven't slept for a couple of days or two or three days. Yeah. And then yeah. it can happen. like you work in a project and you're know, around the clock. You you know work until four a.m. and getting up at six, and then all of a sudden you got to make an important decision. That's usually a bad moment, and it's better just to if you can push it out. Get some sleep and then, then make the decision. The other thing I I try to do is before I make big decisions, I talk to people. You know, you know, there's kind of the saying, "There's wisdom in the counsel of many." Right? You don't necessarily do what people suggest or do, but you're gaining perspective. And you know, a lot of times when you're listening, people will tell you things you haven't thought of. And again, really important decisions. I try to kind of interact with people and kind of explain the situation to them and say, "What would you do?" And get some interesting
0: answers. Yeah. Yeah. Always enlightening and, and that, that's great practical advice. I can tell you, uh I I know I've made some very bad decisions on, on little sleep. So <laughs> I can I can definitely resonate with that.
1: And the other part is like people say I don't infuse emotion and try to make data-driven decisions and those things. It's true, but a lot of uh, you know decisions sometimes can be your instinct and which is an emotion, right? Um, you're, you rely on that. Some people have really good instincts. And kind of can anticipate the way you know things are going to happen. The other thing sometimes it helps doing is you don't have to make a decision in the moment. You know you don't want to be indecisive, and there's a balance. But if you don't need to make a decision in the moment, you don't have to make it. And again, another person I worked with once is I generally don't make decisions unless I really really have to. Yeah, I was like, yeah. wow, that's interesting. I'm the opposite. It was like I'm like, yeah, let's do this, let's do that, let's do this, let's go. Yeah, uh, he was yeah. he was much different. He was like. You know, like yeah, no, but, you know. But thanks for asking me. But I'm not gonna make a decision now if I don't have to make a decision on
0: this point. Hmm, that's interesting. Yep. Uh, we're running short on time here, Dan. I know you got a board meeting to get to, so I'm not going to hold you on too much longer. Uh, I'm I'm curious. Though, we we've spent a lot of time here. Uh, I, I don't want to I don't want it to sound like a downer conversation. We spent a lot of time talking about like embracing the suck and making yeah, hard decisions. You know. <laughs> yeah. And tell me, uh, you know, you know, you talked about fear yeah the, f- the flip side of fear in this business i think is is excitement and anticipation and positive right so so tell me what you're most excited about
1: oh it's interacting with patients who get a benefit from your drug uh, as they're going through a clinical study it's irreplaceable like getting a text or an email from somebody saying you helped me tremendously or, you helped my mother or whatever yeah uh, you know that that counter that is really what makes it worth it and then if you're it, you know like when herbatics got approved it was at a pasco and Going through the booth, and just pause for a moment, looked up and saw, you know, the the commercial name of the drug in lights, and you know, re- reflected on that, it's like it's it was decades to get there, and yeah. so many people, and so much you know, uh, work, but here it is helping thousands of people, and really, I think helped you know, the 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 teams and the founders and movement really put in into motion the the blocking antibody, and, and really, I think paved the way for the checkpoints. And, um, so that's an amazing, amazing, um, feeling, mm-hmm. irreplaceable, you know? And, and I, I say to people, I was like, look, we're not making chairs, right? There's nothing wrong with making chairs, but we're making life saving cancer drugs. There's, it's a privilege, right? It's probably, you know, we, we're all at the end and we're like, starting to go to the downer path again, but you're at the end. You're like, all right, what did I do? Like, you're not going to regret having made drugs that help people with cancer. ever, right. right. Um. So, you know, again, that to me is like, um, it's awesome. It's such a a beautiful thing um, and something I'm super grateful for, especially here in Amherst. I mean, I think we have not only the HER2 program, but the prostate program that we have is heating up really nicely. And it's super interesting because people have tried to target this particular target. It's called PSMA, prostate-specific membrane-bound antigen, right? So it's a specific Mm -hmm. antigen that relates to prostate cancer. And other companies tried to target this with an agency and couldn't. Because they had weak conjugation, they had toxicity that was unacceptable. And so far, we're having the opposite because of the strength of our conjugation, we're not falling apart, we're not seeing unacceptable toxicity. And I think we're going to be able to get to a therapeutic dose. We're also seeing PSA levels decline. So um, and again, that's on the positive side of things. As you're going through this, you're like, Oh my gosh, this is working, it's beautiful. Yeah. So hopefully that um provides the listeners some kind of happy,
0: a happy thought at the end of this. Uh, end of this. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll, we'll be paying attention. It's exciting work. As I said, uh, indications that affect, uh, you know, no nobody, like there's no one, there's no one on the face of the earth who who is not familiar or doesn't know people who are affected by prostate and metastatic breast cancer. It's super important work. Great, big, giant indications. We wish you the best, Dan. I Thank always you, enjoy man. spending, enjoy spending time with you. Hope to have you back on it, on the show again soon. And uh, and thanks again for, for spending uh, some time with us. Okay.
1: I'd love to. And thank you so much for how you conduct this interview. It's really appreciated. My goal is to come back and t- give you good updates on these two programs.
0: We'll, we'll, back. Yeah, we'll, we'll hold out for it.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And I'll try not to fill it up with sad stories. We'll make it some happy stories.
0: That sounds good. All right. So that's that's Ambrick's CEO, Dan O'Connor. I'm Matt Pillard. This is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online with the support of Cytiva, which demonstrates its support to new and emerging biopharma companies at sitevacom backslash emerging biotech. If you like listening in on conversations with biopharma leaders like Dan, subscribe to the Business of Biotech podcast. Sign up for our newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. And also be sure to leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. As always, thanks for listening.